0: Morning comes from the New Testament book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 3, from verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.
1: What a great reading. Um, We continue our Ephesians series this morning um, and uh, we're looking at... Prayer. Well, what do you pray about? One thing that's true about prayer is that it gives us a window into ourselves. The things that we pray about reveal what we care about. Perhaps you pray about your health, that you will be healthy or that you'll get better or that you'll recover from something. Perhaps you pray about your kids or your elderly parents or for some unfulfilled dream that you've got. I remember when I was 10 years old, lying in bed, praying passionately that Fitzroy would win the grand final. It never happened, and now they don't exist, so it shows you my prayers. God was not listening. Um, Another time when I was a kid at church, I remember this missionary standing up to do a missionary talk, and they were talking in their... One of their anecdotes was about how they had a tapeworm and how the tapeworm was removed And I remember praying, God, I will do anything for you, but please don't make me a missionary. (laughs) Our prayers reveal our anxieties and our ambitions. They reveal our priorities, and it's a window into our desires. Well, today we're looking at Paul's prayer. (coughs) In in, uh, last week's passage, Paul uh, urged the Ephesians to remember what they once were, which was that they were once cut off from God, or alienated from God, and now they've been brought close to him. God has included them in his new society that he's created, a multi-racial um, uh, society, Jew and Gentile, multi-ethnic people, at peace with each other and at peace with God. Then in chapter 3, um, Paul begins by turning the focus to himself. He says he's a prisoner for Christ for the sake of you Gentiles, and he's saying this is a positive thing you know, he was actually literally a prisoner of Nero, Emperor Nero in jail, but he's saying in spiritual terms, he's been captivated by Christ and this is what his life is about. He trusted in the Lord Jesus to be in control of everything and, um, you know, this sounds like a terrible burden of suffering to be in jail, but he sees it as a privilege. God's chosen him to, for this special task to be the Gentile to the the apostle to the Gentiles. And even if it meant going to prison or dying for the cause, he would never give up. And all of this, this led Paul to pray for the Ephesians, which he does in verse 14 For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Like Paul, uh, Dan- Daniel, or, or even Stephen, we see, and Jesus, they are all people in the Bible. Who kneel when they prayed. Kneeling is a posture of humility. It shows God that we think he's in charge. The Psalms talk about bowing as well. Psalm 95, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. We bow out of respect. Um, other times, people in the Bible stood to pray. The Jews usually stood to pray. Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord while standing. Jehoshaphat stood in the house of the Lord. And we know from church history that the early church fathers often prayed standing up. Oregon and Jerome and Augustine stood up to pray, uh, to stand before someone shows respect. Like when the school principal used to enter our classrooms when I was at school, we were taught to stand up when he came in the room, to show respect. When the judge enters the courtroom, we stand to show respect. But another kind of posture you can have when you pray is, um, especially if you're intensely praying, is to lie down with your face on the ground. Moses did this. Joshua did this. Job did this in the presence of the Lord. Um, John says in his vision in the book of Revelation, even the angels are doing this in heaven. This is to show your absolute unworthiness and the other person, or in, in the Bible's case, God's absolute power and authority. Your life is in their hands. You do this when you are overwhelmed. So, when Paul mentions that he's kneeling, kneeling before the Father, take note our posture affects our prayers. You can pray, doing anything really, while walking, while driving, surfing, riding your bike, kneeling, lying down, sitting on the toilet, whatever. You can pray, but be intentional in your posture. It will affect your attitude but there's more to prayer than posture isn't there let's look at the content of what paul prays for well he first of all he prays for the ephesians that they'll be strengthened with power he says i pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so he makes these two petitions for them to be strengthened in their inner being. He prays for power through um, God's spirit in their inner being. And he also says that Christ may dwell in their hearts. In one sense, he's sort of saying the same thing twice, using kind of different concepts, because if you have power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being, Christ is dwelling in your heart. But on the other hand, Paul's also acknowledging the role of the persons of the Trinity, um he's what the role of christ the role of the holy spirit in our lives and in fact paul's saying that all the persons of the trinity are involved in our life he's praying to the father about christ and about the holy spirit and what they're doing how do you address the father the son and the spirit in your prayer life do you address all three or just the father or just god or you're not sure who to address It's okay if you feel a bit confused about this. There's no rules, but there are some helpful guidelines. And it's worth just noticing how Paul prays here. What guidelines do we have in the the Bible? Well, Jesus says to his disciples that they can pray to him. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Or in John 14, Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son you may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. But Jesus also said to pray to his Father. Uh, Catherine just talked before about the Lord's Prayer. Think about the Lord's Prayer. This really is the model that we should base our prayer life on. And it's worth observing in the New Testament that after Jesus ascended, there are lots and lots of prayers recorded. Um, but only three of them are, are addressed to Jesus, and there's one or two addressed to the Holy Spirit, but the vast majority are addressed to the Father. So while there's no rules, there's kind of a guideline and a pattern that's worth noting about addressing the Father in your prayers. Um, the great theologian J.R. Packer says, I pray to the Father through the mediation of the Son and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. I may speak also to the Son, and the Spirit directly when this is appropriate, that is, when I am praying about something that Scripture specified as the direct concern of either. And this is what Paul is doing here. He's praying to the Father that the Spirit's power would strengthen them and that Christ would dwell in them. But he goes on with his prayer. There's more. Look at verse 17b. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love... So this shows us why Paul wants Christ to control the Ephesians, captivate them, um, indwell them. He wants them to be strengthened to love. God has created this new society, a new humanity, and their greatest virtue has to be love. This is what 1 Corinthians 13 is about, isn't it? As we saw last week, this is the love of the family, one of the images Paul uses about this new society. The love between brothers and sisters with God as their father. The thing is, this kind of love doesn't come easy. Anybody who's been part of a church for any kind of length of time will know how hard it is to show genuine love to the people in your church. It's easy to kind of rock up to church and be nice and and just sort of say hi over a cup of tea, but to actually really show love uh, in a Christ-like way is more challenging. This might look like sitting down for half an hour with, a, with another person who's sharing the struggles in their life and actually listening to them, right when you'd maybe perhaps rather be somewhere else or talking to someone else who's a lot easier to talk to. Or it could look like having friends over and inviting a few people who don't usually get an invite. That's what Christians are called to do and be like in their love for each other. Um, it could be joining a ministry team with people that are not like you, that are a bit awkward, a bit strange, a bit different, um, and making an effort to get along. That's what Christian love looks like. It looks like sharing your possessions with, or finances with someone who's struggling. Being a Christian, it's not about like, experiencing private warmth and feeling nice. That's just sort of lame spirituality. It's actually about being a disciple of Christ. It's about carrying your cross. Jesus says the ultimate kind of love is this. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. Now you hear that and you go, this is hard. How can I do this? It makes me feel tired. Loving people in a sacrificial way is hard. How can anyone do this? And this is why Paul prays for strength for them. When the Holy Spirit works powerfully in you and Christ dwells in you, you're given the power to love each other, even across racial and cultural divides that normally separate us. Paul uses a botanical and an architectural image to explain how this works. He says to the Ephesians that he wants uh, wants God to make them rooted in love, which is like a tree with deep roots, and he wants them to be established in love or grounded in love, there's another translation. Um, You are to have firm foundations like a house built on a rock. In other words, your love should be deep, not superficial. Be like a glorious, well-rooted tree, like a big oak tree with the roots going 20 metres underground or a a ginormous house. Um, But... Remember, even though you can see the amazing thing, it's really what's going on underneath that makes them strong. And we have people in our church who I know clearly demonstrate this kind of love. These are people who are not needing to be needed. They're not people who want to be noticed, so I'm not going to name them. I thought about it, but then I thought, no, better not. They just want to quietly get on with their lives and get on with loving people, driving people to hospital visits or making meals for people when they need it, or sharing their possessions and finances. These are the people who come to church and their eyes are open and they're looking around. They're not just looking to their friends, but they're looking around to everyone to see where their needs are and see what they can do. Historians know that the early church grew rapidly because the Christians opened their homes to orphans and widows and the people in society who'd been rejected. If we want to be a church who grows, and we do, the growth isn't going to come from things like fancy websites, although that's good to have a fancy website, but it's not going to come from that. It's not going to come from the most inspiring worship band, although they're they're good things to have too, or the best preaching that's good to have too, but it's not going to come from that. It will come primarily from the extent to which we love one another in a Christ-like way. So if you're ever stuck for what to pray, this is a great place to start. Pray like Paul. Pray what he does. Pray for the Ephesians. Pray for yourself. Pray for us to be rooted and established in love. Well, the third thing Paul prays for is in verse 18, that they may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Paul believes that the Ephesians and Christians in general need strength and power to know Christ's love. One way you can learn about Christ's love is to love others. But sometimes we get this wrong. Sometimes, because we're sinners, we we sacrificially serve people to win Christ's love. And that doesn't work. That, that just sets us up to be let down and feel disappointed and angry with God. That's the person who works really hard joining all the rosters at church, expecting God to pay them back with like a good life in return as payment. And what happens is that person will then experience some kind of suffering, and they'll turn around and get angry with God because God didn't pay them the way they thought they should be paid with a good life. It's very difficult for us because we're sinful human beings, to know how, un, and understand Christ's love for us and that it's free and that God is a God of grace. And this is why we need help from God to get our heart in good order. You can't know Christ's love by being super smart. It's a love that surpasses knowledge, says Paul. It's a love that is so wide that it encompasses all of humanity, It's a love that is so long that it lasts for eternity. It's a love that is so deep it reaches the worst kind of sinners like me and like you. It's a love so high that it caused Paul to look up to heaven. There is a song that we sang in Sunday school, which you can sing along with me now if you know it. Rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham, rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham, rock my soul in the bosom of Abraham. Oh rock my soul now the chorus, here we go. So high you can't get over it so low you can't get under it. So what his actions I forgot they can't get around it. Oh, rock my soul. We'll stop there. We need these songs and we need prayer to know how profound this is. It requires divine intervention for us to know Christ's love like this. There's been different times in my life when I've known Christ's love more and and more and less at different times. It becomes more vivid sometimes and less vivid at other times. Times when I've felt so blessed, or so inspired, or so excited by God, by what what God has been doing in my life, that it's like my heart has melted with joy. Sometimes this has happened, I've found, in small personal ways, kind of small ways. So like, you'll be sitting in the middle of a Bible study, and you've just read this um, passage, and somebody makes a comment, and you know, and you, you become overwhelmed, I don't know if you've experienced that. So sometimes we can know Christ's love in these small, kind of normal, habitual ways of of living our lives as Christians. Other times it can be more lightning bolt. Like um, at significant moments in my life when I felt God's hand in my life. Like I remember the the day we launched Mary Creek 10, 10 years ago, almost. You know, the first service in this room and I was like can't believe it's happening. You know, it's like a lightning bolt hits you and a sense of Christ's love. Or, you know, the birth of my children, you you feel so blessed, you can't explain it. And it's not just that your child is born, but that God loves you. And there's these profound times where it feels like you get a window into heaven. But there's other times when it feels like my knowledge of, of the depth and the height and the width of Christ's love feels more distant. And you might be experiencing that right now. And this can be really hard. And it can be for a whole lot of reasons. Perhaps you're burdened with stressful stuff in your life right now. And that stress is just overshadowing your sense of Christ's love for you. Another way you can potentially do, you can, you can distance yourself also from God. That's another thing that I think we do sometimes. You can go through long periods of your life where you're not really praying or reading the Bible very much. And it just sort of, you start to feel distant from God. God hasn't gone anywhere, but you feel the distance. Another way we can distance ourselves from God is through persistent and unrepentant sin. Our hearts can become hardened, and so then we go, but I don't feel Christ's love anymore. I wonder why. Then at other times, it seems like God has a way of stepping back from us just for a while, not a way, but just stepping back, in order that we might seek him out more deeply. He invites us to... to go deeper with him. See, God is not our magic genie who just appears out of nowhere when we want him to and does what we demand. That's not how God works. Rather, sometimes he wants us to seek him out and wait for him. And sometimes we wait for a long time. But the good news is, whatever the case is, Paul shows us that we can pray and we should pray that we know this profound love that Christ has the profound love of Christ in our hearts. And we can pray for that for each other. Well, there's a fourth thing that Paul prays for. Look at verse 19b, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, a question the Ephesians might have had for Paul was about why Paul is praying for the Spirit or to dwell in their hearts, and what... Why, if if he's doing that, why, why is he doing that? And why is he praying for the fullness? Don't we already have the Holy Spirit? Aren't we already filled with the Holy Spirit when we become Christians? Isn't the Spirit present in the heart of every believer already? Did Paul have this kind of theology that first you convert to Jesus, then later on the Holy Spirit enters your life? Is that what Paul's saying? There's been some charismatic circles um, that I've been associated with over the years where a big emphasis is placed on being filled with the spirit and the person at the front will be praying and the worship band will be going and they'll say come up the front and be filled with the Holy Spirit and um, in some charismatic circles this then leads to manifestations of the spirit speaking in tongues, shaking, falling over, crying, prophetic speech, and so on. And when I was a younger, more earnest Christian, I was very earnest when I was younger, slightly less earnest these days, um, I used to be confused about all this, and I would say, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, so why are we making this distinction distinction between being filled and not being filled? And I used to just throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. Um, I I do think that um, there was an overemphasis placed on that in these charismatic circles that almost they made it like this kind of you're converted, then you're really converted. And I think that was unhelpful and it led to a lot of unhelpful thinking. But then I realised that I shouldn't throw the whole baby out with the bathwater, that this idea of being filled with the spirit is a good thing. And I came across the teaching of John Stott, of all people, on this topic. And for those of you who don't know him, he was a famous English-Anglican minister who spoke with a posh accent, and the furthest thing you can imagine from a kind of extreme charismatic. Um, And he wrote a book called Baptism and Fullness, The Work of the Holy Spirit Today. And in that book, he explains that while every Christian is indwelt by Christ, and is the temple of the Holy Spirit, he says, the indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. And so is the inward strengthening of the Spirit. You can be filled, but you can really be filled, he's saying. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, especially if you're a maths or a physics person, nah, you can't be filled and then really filled. Like, that's just not good physics. But the thing is, this is not physics. It's a spiritual concept, what we're talking about here. And I think the closest thing that I can think of to explain what, what, what Paul's talking about and why he's praying for them to be filled, to experience the fullness of Christ, is love. Love is the closest thing I can think of. So I'll, I'll show you what I'm, what I'm talking about. Before I was married to Joe, when we were dating, I loved Joe. On the day that we got married, I really loved Joe. And then 18 and a half years later, where we are today, I love her even more deeply. Now, did I love her before we were, the December the 4th, 2004? I did. Did I love her on December the 4th, 2004? Yeah. Do I love her today? Even more. But it's all love, isn't it? It's a matter of degrees. I guess that's the closest parallel I can see. Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit that's in them would invigorate them and give them power and protect them from spiritual battles and that they'll be fully aware of the power of the Spirit that the Spirit is giving them. Paul says in Ephesians that Christians have come to fullness of Christ, but he sees that they have room for growth in this, growth in the fullness. Think about the end goal of the Christian life, It's to enter into the new heavens and the new earth with our resurrection bodies where we will be filled to capacity and the New Testament says we become like Christ. And this is God's promise to us. It's the ultimate fullness, isn't it? Where you become like Christ. John Stott says, God expects us to be growing daily towards that final fullness as we're being transformed by the Holy Spirit into Christ's image from one degree of glory to another. So, as we come to the end, to recap, we can see how huge Paul's prayer is for the Ephesians. He prays on his knees that God gives them the strength of the Spirit and the ruling presence of Christ. He prays that their lives are rooted and grounded in love. He prays that they would know the enormity of Christ's love. He prays that they would be filled by God. And you might feel overwhelmed by all this, but you need to know that God's not overwhelmed. Paul says that God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. He pours out his grace abundantly. He's like the father in the prodigal son story. When the rebellious son comes home, what does the, the father do? He kills a fatted calf and throws a big party. Here's enough to share around, and this is what God's like with you. You might have a picture in your mind of what God could do in your life, but God's picture is much bigger. It's infinitely bigger and more exciting than what you can imagine. We have access to God's incredible resurrection power. Pray for it, ask for it to be poured out on all of us. And as Paul says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.